looking at that and referring to that. And then just in case you haven't noticed, uh, John, Mark, and Shay are not here this morning. They are taking a much-deserved, a much-needed vacation. I appreciate uh, Billy and Susan stepping in and just like to say a personal note of appreciation since he's not here, I can embarrass him. John Mark really is just a vital part of this church, and we are so grateful to have him. Whoa, there's a lot of sound happening. <laughs> you know, the session may grab the steering wheel and, and, and make the direction, and they may look to me to hit the gas and make it go. John Mark, in very many ways, is the engine, and there's so much that just would not happen without him, so we're very grateful to have him. We look forward to the day the Lord uh, gives us the resources to make him full-time. So anyway, that's enough of John Mark stuff. Since he's not here, like I said, I can embarrass him. So as we're journeying through Philippians this morning, being Philippians chapter 4, we're, we're going to finish up Philippians this month, it looks like, finally. And starting in September, Lord willing, we're going to go through a series together on the Psalms of Ascent, a, ser- a series of 10 to 15 psalms there that are very good about going into God's presence and worshiping Him. We're looking forward to spending some time in the Old Testament again. It's been a while. So as we're getting our mind here into Philippians chapter 4, I want to set a scene for you to try to help you understand what's going on. So we get up there, I've heard a lot of reverb down here. Okay, there's this movie that came out in 2001, it's called The Last Castle, it has Robert Redford in it. He plays a very popular general who... Uh, Stages. They kind of give you a little bit of details, but not many. He stages a very successful rescue mission of some captured soldiers. However, he didn't have permission to do it. In fact, he was specifically denied permission to do this mission because it would cause political trouble. But being the general he was, he did it anyway, rescued these men, and so he was promptly court-martialed. And he is going to prison. And as he's entering the prison gates, the commander of the prison is there, and he looks at his assistant and says, They should be naming a fort after this guy, not incarcerating him. This is a very difficult person to have in your prison. He's a natural leader. The men love him, and he just, people follow him. They can't help themselves. Robert Redford, he's a character who just inspires men wherever he goes, even in prison. He has such a personality that becomes a problem. I want to show you a picture from one scene in the movie. Hey, they're in the rain. I don't know if you can see this or not, but this one prisoner here on, on, the, on the left who is uh, kind of ducking down, he got a little unruly with the guard, and the guard tried to calm him down, and he wouldn't calm down, and he actually ended up pushing the guard, and so the guard grabs his baton. He's about to beat the prisoner, and Robert Redford grabs his arm and says, Son, you're better than this. And he looks at the guy and says, Calm down. And the guy immediately is like, Yes, sir. Sorry, sir. You know, and he's not a general anymore. He's a prisoner. They're all equal. But I want to focus on that idea of Robert Redford looking that guy in the eye and saying, you're better than this. Don't beat this man. You are a better person than that. There is something inside of you more noble, more just, and more true if you will just yield to that better person. And that's exactly where Paul has left us in the book of Philippians. That's right where Paul left us last passage where he challenges us and says, your citizenship is in heaven. That's who you are. Heaven citizens right here, right now, but that's where you're from. That's where you're supposed to go. So just to remind you of where we've been in Philippians, Paul has reminded them that once they're in God's family, they have the privilege of of getting to know more and more of Christ. And that Christians then, once they become Christians, are supposed to chase after Christ pursuing a a more vital and robust relationship with him. And Paul tells us that if people in the church don't passionately pursue after Christ, 
then we will end up passionately pursuing our own desires instead. Falling in love with the world and the things of the world and ending up as enemies of the cross. But those who chase after Christ, Paul says, live in hope as citizens of heaven. Looking for Christ to come back and fix it all as we saw last week. And so Paul now calls on them to persevere in that hope. And he shows them how that hope works itself out in real life. So if you would, look with me. Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. This is God's word. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. This is God's Word. Would you please pray with me before we open up this text? Father God, we ask that you would come down once again. Open this Word to our hearts, Lord. Open our hearts to your Word, Holy Spirit, that we may know Christ, see your Gospel, and be more obedient disciples. Lord, we pray that for those who don't know you, that we would see your Gospel this day and be changed by the encounter. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to kind of sum up where we're going to go today, what we're going to talk about, make it a little easier on you to pay attention, hopefully. Here's today's theme, what we're going to talk about. When we stand on Christ's hope, His humility will give us joy and make our humility famous. See, we stand on Christ's hope to have His humility, His joy, and His reputation. That sounds kind of intriguing, I know, so let's jump in there and see what we have here. First of all, standing in Christ's hope. If you remember the whole last month, chapter 3 has been about passionately being a Christian. Not just, yeah, I'm a Christian, I go on Sunday morning, you know, it's it's all right, it's cool, it's a great group of people, and it makes me happy during the week. But no, this is actually passionately pursuing discipleship with the Lord who's saved you. Chasing after Christ now that He has saved you. Paul wants that reality for them so much. This is the Paul who's all about salvation by grace. You cannot do anything. You bring nothing to the table. You are saved not from your works, but from the work of Christ. And then Paul's like, but once you're in that Christ, guess what? Christ calls you to work, to follow him, to pursue after him. We use the analogy because Paul says chase after Christ. We use the picture that basically once we get into Christ, Christ gets us on his team, adopts us into his family and says, okay, ready? Tag, you're it. And he takes off and we get to spend our life pursuing after Christ. That passionate discipleship is what Paul longs for. He wants it so much and so he sums up the entire chapter by basically saying, look, just do it. Just do it. Fall after Christ. Go for it. Go after Christ. He's ordering them. He gives them a command. Just do it. Stand firm in this gospel. Go. But he reminds them how much he loves them first. Notice that little phrase there in verse 1. He says, my joy and crown. And when you think about that, you think about kings and glory and, and palaces and stuff. 
Paul and the Philippians would read that and they would think Olympics. The winners of the Olympics did not get medals like they do now. They got these laurel crowns. And on you know, Sunday afternoons, people didn't sit around the fall and watch the football. They sat around and they watched the Olympics. This was their national pastime. I mean, Paul is in Philippi. He's talking to Philippians in Greece. The Olympics were still a big deal at this point. So they immediately would think, oh, Paul's talking about joy and crown. He's talking about someone who's worked really hard to win a prize. And that's what Paul's saying to them. He's saying, I have worked so hard for you. I love you so much. And because I love you so much, would you please listen to me? Stand firm. Take seriously your faith. Be strong in the gospel. He's summing up having a passionate walk, basically with the old Nike commercial. Just do it. Stand firm. You know all this stuff. It's not a matter of knowledge. It's a matter of sloth. So just do it. Pursue Christ. Boys and girls, here's how I put it for you. Look with me at your verse 1. Here's what Paul is telling these people. My dear family, I love y'all, and I wish I could be there. I have worked as hard as I can to win y'all for Christ. So stay strong in the Lord. See, boys and girls, it's hard to be told what to do, isn't it? Well, adults don't like it either, either, just so you know. But when the person loves you, it makes it a lot easier for them to tell you what to do, doesn't it? Even when they say things like, don't you hate this when your parents say, because I said so? I know, right? But they love you, and so it, it makes it a little easier. And that's kind of what Paul does here. Paul says, look, I love you. Get out of this blah, bland churchiness and pursue Christ. Just do it because I said so. Try it. See, but he doesn't just boss them around. He actually makes himself an example of how to do this, of how to stand firm. He points to things in their church to show them how they can stand firm. And so how do we do it? How do we just do it, right? How do we stand firm in Christ's hope? The first thing he shows us is to have Christ's humility. Throughout the entire book of Philippians, Paul has taught humility. Paul has shown Christ's humility all through chapter 2. And it's all been to get to this point. Chapter 4, verse 2, is the reason Paul wrote the book of Philippians. Look with me at verse 2. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Notice that word there, entreat. It means to beg. It means to ask. Grovingly, almost. Paul is an apostle. Paul is one of 12 men in the history of the church who gets to say, because I said so. I don't get to say that to y'all. No other elder gets to say that to y'all. We get to say because God's word says so. Apostles got to say because I said so, and Paul doesn't. Instead, he demonstrates the humility he's been calling them to for three chapters by asking them, by humbling himself before them and begging them. So what's going on? There's a fight between two women in the church. It's more than a personal quarrel between two old ladies. That's not what's going on. If you remember Acts 16, when Paul plants the church in Philippi, he first speaks to women gathering for prayers at the riverside. God leads him to a group of powerful women, one of whom is named Lydia, who's rich, who's wealthy, who lives in a big house. She actually hosts the church. 
and most likely there's other powerful women who get attracted to that location and so they come and so the actual original core group of this church is the Philippian jailer and some of his buds and this group of powerful women that's the core group to the Philippian church so realistically what we're looking at is there's a good chance that Yodia and Syntyche are like charter members of the church and we all know it's never a good idea when there's like a grunge match between charter members right I mean, it'd be like, let me just, just randomly say, it'd be like as if, um, yeah, I'm totally kidding, like I'm going to name names, right? So, some of your eyes were like, oh my gosh, is he going to say it? No, I'm not going to say it. But you know, right, if there was a grunge match between charter members, that'd be bad. It'd be ugly. And Paul names names for all of church history to see because it's a big deal. And verse 3 helps us see how big of a deal it really is. Notice all those descriptions in verse 3. <clears throat> These are born-again, experienced Christians. It'd be so easy for us to say, oh, they're superficial, they're being silly, and they weren't that involved, they're just causing problems. Paul's like, no, these people were founders. These people labored and sweated and worked with me for the gospel. These are born-again, serious, sanctified ladies who are at an impasse and is ripping the church apart. Paul wrote this letter because he heard this report from Epaphroditus. And Paul's like, I can't go, but we've got to do something. And that's why he sent this letter. And what he says to them is so simple. When he finally, after he's made his case for three chapters, now he brings it down. Okay, here's the sentence of Philippians for you two ladies. You ready? He basically says, look, because y'all are in the Lord, get over it. I know, that's not very satisfying, is it? He calls them to agree. The word there is actually to be of the same mind. Have the same mind on this issue. If you remember, we've heard that before in the book of Philippians. I'll call to mind. We'll put it on the screen so you don't have to flip there. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Before he gives this glorious picture of Jesus Christ's humility, what does he tell us? Have this mind, or agree, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, he says, look, because believers have the mind of Christ, we should have the same mind with each other. Because we agree with Christ, right, it's kind of a good thing for Christians to be like, yes, I agree with Christ, right? Well, because we agree with Christ, Paul says, we should agree with others in the church. We should have the same mind as each other. See, what Paul is saying there, he's saying, Jesus Christ, in humility, gave up heaven to live as a person he suffered on earth he died for us and he did that while we were still his enemies while we disagreed with him he did that for us and so if we really are christians we will treat each other the same way you don't have to agree with me before i will love and serve you i will love and serve you in spite of it because we're in christ together I will get over this issue. See, living passionately for Christ, standing firm in the gospel, causes us to just let go of the unimportant stuff. And most church conflicts are not over important stuff. And how many ongoing conflicts or disagreements would just go away if we decided to get over it instead of trying to win it. But let's be candid. That is not easy to do, is it? That is not easy. 
Very recently, in our extended family, we had a situation where I did the right thing. But the right thing ended up causing a conflict with another Christian in the family. And it got ugly, and it wasn't getting better. There was a severe argument. There was even a rift. And Nikki and I were discussing it a few minutes after it happened, and she said, you know, there needs to be an apology. And I was like, absolutely. I agree. There needs to be an apology. I am totally willing to forgive that person quickly. Absolutely. And she looked at me and said, no, Sean, you need to apologize. And of course, you know, I'm a professional Christian. I have a master's degree in theology, so I was very, <clears throat> what? Are you crazy? And my sweet wife gave me that look, that look that I get from her more than I should, that says, yeah, you should, like, know this. It's your job. I wish I could tell you that your pastor is just so sanctified that I knew she was right and I went and I fixed the situation. That is not the case. I stewed for at least an hour knowing she was right. Knowing that this is what the Holy Spirit wanted me to do. Knowing this is what Scripture demanded. Knowing that for the sake of the gospel that two Christians in a family of unbelievers, one of whom is a pastor, needs to reconcile like now, publicly. I just didn't want to because I was right. This passage came to mind. The fact that I was going to be preaching this passage in about a month came to mind. And I did not want God to strike me down dead as a hypocrite on this day, honestly. So I prayed as honest as I could. I said, Lord, I do not want to do this. I recognize that I am being arrogant and stubborn and sinful. I don't feel like I should have to apologize, and I just don't want to do this. So you're going to have to change my want-tos. Amen. And he did. And we reconciled. And it's okay. And that's exactly what Paul tells these women. Just get over it for Christ's sake. Boys and girls, look with me at your verse 2. Here's what Paul is saying. He says, I beg you, Mrs. E, and I beg you, Mrs. S, act like Christians and just get over your fight. Sometimes, boys and girls, when you're upset about something, the best way to fix it is just to get over it. A lot of times we hold a grudge because we want to win. Pastor Sean knows that's hard just to get over it. Mom and Dad know it's hard to get over it, but you know what Jesus Christ does too? He's been there. He can help you if you ask him to give you strength to get over it. See, but Paul doesn't just leave it at these two women. He makes it bigger than just these two women. Paul shows them that this affects the whole church. And so he calls on godly leadership to get involved and help in verse 3. He calls on somebody. We don't know who. You can guess. Your guess is as good as mine. He calls on somebody who's clearly very sanctified to get in and help. We American Christians chafe against this kind of community we're rugged individuals and our gut reaction very often is you need to stay out of my business right see but christ has made us into a new community and that's bigger than just saying hi on sunday mornings in your personal struggles get help from other christians that's what the family of christ is about that's what it means to agree with each other to get help be of the same mind with other christians And you'll find help in your struggles, but that takes humility. 
It takes admitting you don't have it all together and that you need help. And that's why we need the gospel every day. And that's why God has given us a body of Christ. He's called us to a family and said, y'all, work out your salvation with fear and trembling as we saw about a month and a half ago. That's why he says, y'all, pursue after Christ as we saw a month ago. That's why he says, stand firm as we saw today in Christ together. Because you need each other. And that's hard for us. That goes against our culture. So my question is, do you want to stand firm? Do you want to have hope? Then ask Jesus to give you humility. The kind of humility that sets aside his glory and died on the cross to end the conflict with us. A conflict that we started. Because when we stand in Christ's humility like that, his humility will give us joy which is where Paul takes, it ne- takes us next, about having Christ's joy. Paul has such confidence that they're going to work out this issue. He has such, he's just so confident. They're going to fix it. He knows it's going to happen. And so what do you do when a long time conflict is over? Well, look with me at verse 4. What do you do? <clears throat> rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice is a verb. Paul is commanding an action. In our last passage, enemies of the cross cherished the earthly. They rejoiced in the earthly, trying to squeeze joy out of the things of this life. Paul says, citizens of heaven find joy in the Lord. And so we can be commanded to rejoice. And if we can't rejoice in the Lord, it's because we don't get it. We don't really get how much God has done for us in the gospel. Or we have this really wretched idea that is just rampant in Presbyterian churches that being somber and being severe is, is somehow what, pers- what Christianity looks like. That if you're born again, you've got to like be serious. No levity. Don't laugh. But laughter, joy, rejoicing is good and it's godly. Boys and girls, I want to ask you, um, help me out here. Does always mean sometimes or or does always mean always right i'm I'm gonna go for always meaning always okay do you think mom and dad know that boys and girls that always means always let's see let's let's see i'm gonna repeat myself laughter is good and godly adults do you believe that do you really If I were to ask you, what are the sins that Christians struggle with? I seriously doubt that a failure to rejoice would make your list. But it should. This is a clear command from Scripture to rejoice. And so when we don't rejoice, God says, don't steal. Like, okay, I shouldn't steal. He says, rejoice. Eh, I can ignore that one. We don't think it's a big deal. See, to rejoice in something is to treasure it. To rest our heart on this object, we rejoice in it. Rejoicing in the Lord is treasuring Him so much that we relax our grip on all this other stuff that we think we need to be whole and happy. We let go because our treasure is God Himself. I want to help you see this. Allow me just a little little excursion here. I want to play with language a little bit to show you what Paul's doing here. <clears throat> I think I, I, it really helped me. Maybe this will help you. And I want to use a scene from uh, Wreck-It Ralph to set this up, okay? 
So Wreck-It Ralph, if you haven't seen Wreck-It Ralph, okay, Wreck-It Ralph is a really good one. You should see Wreck-It Ralph. It's got some pretty profound stuff in it. It's video games. After the arcade is over, apparently they're alive. And they, the characters can interact and everything with each other. So here's this character. This is the king. He's King Candy. He's in this other game. And Wreck-It Ralph is this big guy who's trying to get information from him, and he's not cooperating. And the king can tell he's about to get physically assaulted. So he puts on glasses real quick, and he says, You wouldn't hit a guy with glasses, would you? So Wreck-It Ralph grabs the glasses, takes the glasses, and hits him with the glasses. And the king goes, You hit a guy with glasses. Well, well played. Okay, that's funny. See, you're not catching it. Okay, there's two senses of the word with, right? There's with glasses, meaning I'm together with the glasses. Don't hit a guy who's together with glasses, with. But the other sense is with the object of the glasses. Do not use the instrument of the glasses with to hit me. That's language, right? With has two meanings, right? This means yes, it means no. Okay, why is Pastor Sean belaboring this point? Here's why. So too... Rejoice in the Lord has those same two senses. We rejoice in our togetherness in the Lord. But we also rejoice in the object of the Lord. We rejoice that He's with us and we rejoice for who He is and what He's done. Both those senses together. We rejoice to be with Him. And we rejoice because of who He is. Now here's why that matters. Here's why I'm going here. Paul tells us here when he says, rejoice in the Lord, not to manufacture joy. Don't be all American, like, okay, I got to go out and I got I to make joy, I got to be joyful. Okay, go! I don't know what muscle to strain. I'm trying. Okay, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul has set up all the Philippians to say, go out and model Christ's joy, which is right in front of you. Don't manufacture joy, model Christ's joy. Okay, so what is Christ's joy? And this is why I wanted to do the language thing. We are called to rejoice in the Lord. The Lord, Scripture says over and over again, rejoices in His people. So let's apply those two senses of in. The Lord rejoices in the togetherness of His people. He rejoices that he has adopted you. You are now his family. And he wants to cuddle. I know I'm a Presbyterian minister wearing a robe and I said God wants to cuddle. So sue me. Yes, he does. God wants to cuddle. That's the, he rejoices in his people. But what's the other sense? He rejoices in you as an object. God actually looks at you and he rejoices because of what he has made you. And you don't believe that, which is why you don't rejoice. Because you look at yourself, and you don't like yourself. And you think, God can never rejoice in me. God puts up with me. Because I'm an American. The gospel, yeah, grace, schmace, but really God's the big HR director in the sky. And my evaluation was not very good today. And so I know God's not happy with me. I'm hanging on by a thread. I'm on a 90-day probationary period. I better shape up or they're going to fire me. That's how we think of God. God rejoices in his people. He rejoices in what he has made you. Let that soak into your heart. Because once you get that, you will rejoice in the Lord. That God rejoices in what he's made you. He looks at you. He's proud of you. He says, that's my boy right there. 
That's my girl. Those are my people. Now, in case you think I'm getting all modern and squishy on you, I want you to hear how a mean, old, stodgy Puritan pastor named John Owen said it. Here's what he said. He said, the thoughts of communion with the saints were the joy of his heart from eternity. When you get that around your heart, you will rejoice in the Lord because he wants to rejoice in his people. He loves his people. Having a grip on that gospel, standing firm in that hope, allows you to live joyfully in the midst of today's troubles. Because when we stand on Christ's hope, our humility will give us joy. And that will make our humility famous. Which is where Paul takes us next. We stand in Christ's hope to have Christ's reputation. Look with me at the first part of verse 5. It says this. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So now Paul turns from inside the church to outside the church and says, how should hopeful, humble, joyous Christians be seen by those outside the church? Our humility should be famous. Paul uses a very interesting word here. He uses a word that's translated in the ESV as reasonableness. The old King James Version translated it, um, I believe, moderation. It doesn't have a one-word definition. This word, I want to try to, this is a big deal. If we're supposed to let this show to everybody, we should know what it is, right? This word is, is, if you will, it's the manifestation of Jesus' teaching where Jesus says, turn the other cheek. If someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek also. Now, because we live in a post-Gandhi age and it's very hip and cool to make Jesus be like Gandhi, we read turn the other cheek as a call to nonviolence. Not true. Um, sorry. Jesus actually told his disciples to take a sword, and our redemption is rooted in violence done to our Redeemer. So that the, turn the other cheek is not about nonviolence. In that culture, someone striking you was an insult, a public insult to your dignity. So what, he, what he's saying is not, oh, just be nonviolent, let people abuse you. He's saying if someone insults you, assaults your person, get over it. Take it. Do you feel better? You want this cheek too? That's the word reasonableness. Jesus calls his people with turn the other cheek to take an insult and not retaliate. Take it. Even invite another. So Paul here uses that word and says, look, don't be easily angered by insults. Don't be annoyed by difficulty. Don't be in a huff under persecution and difficulty, which they were in. There's actually, in Greek literature, this word is used of those who purposely let their rights be trampled on for a bigger purpose. Let me say that again. It's used of those who purposely let their rights be trampled on for a bigger purpose. He calls us to a willingness to give up our rights for the gospel. It's what Paul said in verse 2 to the two individuals, right? Doesn't matter who's right, doesn't matter who's wrong, I don't care. Get over it for Christ. And here in verse 5, we're supposed to be known for that by the world. Why would we possibly 
want to give up our rights. Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus Christ gave up his rights to heaven. Jesus Christ set aside his glory. Jesus Christ took up a humble life, set aside his right to be served by his creatures, set aside his right never to die, and he died an unjust, undeserved death. And he did that to overcome our sins, to reconcile the conflict we had with him. He gave up his rights for the bigger purpose of having that joyous communion with us he wanted so badly. And so Paul says, you should too. We offended Christ. He set aside his rights to reconcile with us. And that's the gospel. And that's what we should be known for doing. Use some big words here. So boys and girls, I want to make sure you're following with me here. Look at your uh, verse 5 here in your translation. Paul says this. Everybody should see that God's family is willing to let others win. Boys and girls, you ever played a game? with dad at the restaurant, tic-tac-toe while you're waiting for the waitress to come, right? Does dad let you win sometimes? Or maybe here's where it's harder, more like real life. Maybe you're playing with your, a toy, your favorite toy. You love this toy, and you put it down to do something else, and then that little brother comes and grabs your toy, right? And you want that toy back. You weren't using it just then, but it's yours, and you love it. Paul says, why don't you just let them have it for a little while? Why don't you give it up because Jesus loved you enough to give it up? That's hard, isn't it, boys and girls? That's hard for adults to do too. But if you ask him, Jesus will give you the strength to do that, to let others win. See, Jesus did give up his rights for outsiders, people like us who were outside of the covenant, outside of his family, so we could be brought in. And so, too, we are commanded not to stand on our rights, not to claim what is ours, but to let it go as part of our rejoicing in the Lord. That's what it means to be a heavenly citizen here, to say, I don't have to grasp on to my rights. The insults of this world towards me are just part of the gig. We don't get upset. We don't get perturbed. When we walk as our true selves, heavenly citizens, we don't make our rights the highest good like everybody else in our culture. We let our reasonableness be known to everybody, and it causes people to want to know about the gospel. That's hard, I know. I know even as I say that, part of your heart, part of my heart too, wants to caveat that with all sorts of, yeah, but in this situation, or or what if, Because we're desperate to find an exception to that rule, right? Paul wrote Philippians from a prison cell. Remember that. He was in that cell because he gave up his rights. The Philippian church would remember. Perhaps you've forgotten. In Acts, when Paul's in Philippi, if you remember, there was a riot because of the gospel. Paul lets himself be arrested. Paul lets himself be beaten and put in stocks overnight in a jail. As we see the next morning, all he had to do was claim his rights as a Roman citizen, and that would have stopped. If you read the account, the officials are hacked that he tells them after instead of before. Like, why didn't you tell us? I mean, this is, Philippi and Rome have a very close relationship. You don't beat 
Roman citizens without a really good reason. Paul did not claim his right in, until after everything had happened. Now, I did it. I mean, I, I believe that Paul did it because God told him to as an apostle because it was Paul's reasonableness in that situation that God used to bring the Philippian jailer to himself. If Paul hadn't been in those stocks overnight, there never would have been the encounter with the Philippian jailer. So for a greater purpose, Paul probably didn't even know that. He probably said, I feel called right now not to establish my rights. And so Paul stayed silent and let himself be beaten. He was reasonable. He was willing to give up his rights for a greater purpose. My dear flock, as, as there is ever more encroachment on religious liberty, we are called to let our reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, I know that's not going to get on the Christian radio because that doesn't do fundraising stuff very well. So the guys on Christian radio who are telling you, we're God's army, we're called to go out and fight, find it. Give me a chapter and verse, and I will apologize publicly for what I'm about to say. I don't see that in Scripture. I see let your reasonableness be known to all. I see let your deny yourself guaranteed rights for the good of the gospel be known to all. We, like Jesus, like Paul, need to be slow to claim our rights. Really think about which things to fight for and stand on and which to let go for the good of the gospel. Now, I'm not going to give you a list because I don't know. But just last week as I was preparing this, and I, Lord, okay, how do I apply this? I don't understand. How, what do I do? Just last week, there was an article by a brother Christian in uh, the Atlantic, of all places, not a bastion of religious orthodoxy by any means. And it addressed this very issue. I want to quote to you from his conclusion. It's kind of long, so we have a slide for it so you can follow along. Here's what he said just last week in the Atlantic. He said, too much is at stake for evangelicals to waste our resources and credibility on frivolous and occasionally self-provoked injustices. At times, even legitimate offenses should be overlooked when they are petty. By focusing attention on real and substantial incidences of persecution, evangelicals will be much more effective at fighting for truly important matters of religious liberty. And he should have summed it up by saying, let your reasonableness be known to everyone, because that's exactly what Paul is calling us to right there. That's hard, I know. That is hard. And there's part of my heart right now that hears that and says, I don't want to. I shouldn't have to give up my rights. There's so much Christian history in this country. It's not fair. I shouldn't have to. They're the ones being different and changing everything. Lord, please change my want-tos. So you want to make a difference in your culture for the gospel. We'll wrap up with this. Two things is what Paul calls you to in this passage. Mess people up by rejoicing in all things. And really mess people up by overlooking offenses and being willing to give up your rights. People want to know, why are you doing that? Because when we stand on Christ's hope, our humility will give us joy. And it will make our humility famous. So dear Christians, those of you who, as Paul says here, whose names are written in the book of life, wouldn't it be great 
to be known for overlooking offenses and giving up our rights. Wouldn't it be great if that's what people said? Oh yeah, Christians, those people, they, they let you walk all over them. They must really have something important there. Wouldn't it be great that that's our reputation? Repent of your selfishness, of loving your rights, of loving the rights that this world and our country promises us as the highest hope, and turn your hope to God and his gospel yet again in faith and ask him to help you believe his gospel. Then you can rejoice in him. And once you're rejoicing in the Lord, it's not so hard to give up your rights and be reasonable. And those of you who aren't quite Christians yet and you're hearing this, I'm just going to ask you what could be a very superficial question, but it's, it's not actually, is don't you want to be a more agreeable person? Wouldn't it be nice if you could just let things go instead of holding grudges like you know you do? It's a rare person who can do that, but Jesus Christ did just that for sinners like us, like you. Instead of holding a grudge against our sin, he gave up his rights to glory and heaven and life, and he lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death we should have died so you can be reconciled by his death and resurrection. If you let him, he has the resources to change you into that person you'd like to be. If that's what you want, just cast off everything you've called Christianity, everything you think you know about religion, and just simply place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Say, Lord, I've never prayed before. This sounds really great. I don't know what to do. Please help me. And God will take it from there. And if you've done that, come talk to a friend who brought you to church, or come talk to me. I'd love to help you know what to do from that point. Let's pray together. Father God, as we come before your word today, Lord, I, as the pastor, must confess, I do not like verse 5. I confess my sin of trying to find any resource I could to change the definition of reasonableness because I just didn't want to have, have it mean that. Lord, would you make me and all of us Humbly submit to your word and be obedient. By your Holy Spirit, would you let our reasonableness be known to all so that your gospel would spread and your glory be even more bright. Lord, only you can do that. Would you give us the strength to rejoice in you, to let go of the petty, and to pursue after Christ. We ask that you would do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.